electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. John, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner with breaking news this hour. The Fed Chair and Treasury Secretary set to testify before the House Financial Services Committee. Testimony about to begin. We will go there once the Q&A gets started. In the meantime, let's bring in our headline guest today, Eminence Capital's founder and CEO, Ricky Sandler. He was with us a year ago as stocks were plunging. He was buying. And today he is back with us on what he sees now in the markets. Welcome back, Ricky. It's good to see you. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, we, we've obviously come such a long way since those dark days when we spoke in, in March of 2020. What's your view today of the market? Well, from a high level, um, we're, we're still constructive on the markets, uh, clearly not as bullish as we were a year ago. Um, I tend to like to be a little more contrarian uh, than, uh, than today, where, where I think many people are, are more optimistic um, I, I think that the best opportunities happen in, in times of a big dislocation, which, which we're not seeing today. But uh, having said that, um, since a year ago, the government's done a lot more than I even expected then, even though we expected them to do a lot. The Fed is, is, is on your side. And I think from, from a timing standpoint, we're very much at, at the beginning of an economic expansion, very much at the beginning of the economy reopening. Uh, the Fed has told you as recently as a couple of days ago that they're not going to move or even talk about moving for, for maybe the whole year. Um, and so I think uh, that the, one can still be um, uh, optimistic about markets. I'd say uh, we're a lot more selective today. Um, I don't think it's sort of buy everything and, and buy anything. Um, and so there are there are more pockets of the markets that are that are interesting, and there are clearly pockets of the market that are uh, speculative and and have gotten extended and overvalued, and um, we're seeing some some early signs of, uh, of of behavior, or maybe even not early signs, but but behavior that um, um, is is less healthy than than we'd like to see. Um, having said that, we're we're definitely still constructive. Yeah, you um, you mentioned the you know the obvious reasons to be constructive, the catalysts that have gotten stocks to to where they are. How much good news do you think is priced in today? I mean, you know, it depends on um, which parts of the market and and which. Uh, sectors of the market. So um, I think a reasonable amount um, broadly. Um, but when you um, take a take a big picture look at, at where um, interest rates are and the alternatives are for, for capital, um, I think business cash flows and equities are still a very reasonable place. I think the, the big picture risks around uh, inflation, uh, business cash flows ought to provide good protection from that. And, and we think uh, the economy ought to be exceptionally strong. The amount of savings that have been built up through the pandemic, the amount that the government has already done, the amount that they're talking about doing uh, going forward um, are unprecedented levels, things that, that nobody that has been investing in these markets have seen. Uh, so um, we think that uh, the, the level of economic strength over the next 18 months is, is going to be uh, enormous. 
and and so um, you know I don't know in terms of percentage terms, but but a good amount. But but from a, from certainly from a timing standpoint, um, it, it doesn't feel like the right time to get off the the, the train of the market or um, where we've seen. Uh, enough of the good news, and and we, we haven't even started to see the economy reopen. We haven't even started to see the cyclical uplift as it, as it's just rolling through. So um, at a minimum, those that would sell the news that would probably be a, a back half of twenty twenty one event. I, w- I want to talk to you about some of your specific positions, but sort of broader market picture, given your contrarian view and thoughts that you know a good amount may be priced into this point. How are you positioned? Overall, have you have you been raising more cash? Are you hedged more than you otherwise would be? Can you give us any kind of perspective on how you are playing things right now more broadly? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think I think we um, had been uh, positioned uh, pretty optimistically and and I'd say very optimistically in what I would describe as the more uh, cyclical and value sectors, uh, uh, both uh, coming out of the, the, the downturn of the early phase of the pandemic and then going into kind of the election of the vaccine, um, we have definitely taken some profits and some things that, that are up a lot and have reduced kind of overall uh, levels of exposure. Um, we've been um, uh, using uh, some fixed income shorts, uh, particularly treasury shorts as a, as a hedge and, and frankly, actually as a bet given what we think is happening to, to the economy. Um, and, and so I'd say, um, we're we're not as a, as an overall portfolio a dramatically more hedged, but but probably a little bit more, um, and and I think would would continue to use strength as as opportunities to to do that, um, and and I think it's it's about being more selective, um, and and probably about using a, a little bit less uh, balance sheet overall, uh, given kind of the individual stock volatility and and maybe where we're heading uh, heading to in terms of uh, the point of the cycle we're at. Let's talk some specifics, if we could. And, and I just remind you and, and our viewers as well, we are dancing up to the hearing with the, the Fed chair and the Treasury secretary. So I may have to, to jump at, at, at any moment once the Q&A period does begin, Ricky. But, but let's talk about some of the picks from, from a value and cyclical standpoint. Um, the, the stocks that you gave us that you have been buying, uh, Berry Global, um, one, frankly, that I don't think we've ever talked about on this program. And, and I should also say that all of these names have 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 had huge runs to them, right? The cyclical stocks have done quite well. There's Berry Global, which is up better than 100% over the last year. Auto Nation, more than 200%. We can start there. Can you tell us about those names? Sure. Um, you know, Berry, Berry Global um, is, is in the plastic packaging uh, business. Um, and, and this is uh, uh, formerly an LBO company. Um, this is actually a very uh, defensive business. I'd put this more in the value camp um, and, and a business that I think uh, has been uh, using probably more leverage in the past than it should, um, and a business that has been run more uh, for for cash flow than than growth. Um, they they pivoted a bit over a year ago, um, and I think it's a it's a company where where people hear plastic packaging um, think it's sort of uh, anti ESG, uh, and in fact, um, you know we think plastic is a share gaining uh, material for consumer products. Uh, this is a business that's incredibly defensive. It grew EBITDA both in the great financial crisis and in COVID, um, and and we think they pivoted to to growth well over a year ago. Uh, it's a business that should do uh, seven dollars a share in cash earnings this year, eight next year, and and nine the year after that. And it's a sixty dollars stock, so uh, it, it trades at a at a double digit uh, earnings and free cash flow yield. Um, 
growing volumes, uh, low single digits and profits, uh, kind of mid to high single digits. Um, and, and we think uh, this is a market where you're sort of broadening out the appetite for investors. Uh, and so this would fit kind of in the both value and I would argue um, kind of um, investor perception change where um, you've gone from sort of uh, no volume growth and leverage to uh, a company that will that is growing volumes, will be paying a dividend and will be much more modestly levered uh, in a, you know, a space that's re-rated in, in terms of packaging. I think this is consumer goods packaging uh, is kind of the new um, uh, consumer staples where uh, traditional consumer staples have been disrupted in many ways by uh, what's happening with new brands and new distribution methods with Amazon. But the infrastructure for that are, are these companies that, that do a lot of the uh, manufacturing packaging for them. And, and so, um, uh, you know, 15 times eight bucks is, is a double from here um, that we think uh, you get over the next year. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 very global. Auto Nation was the next one I wanted you to address. I mean, it's up better than 200 uh, percent. Autos have been very strong. Um, it continues, you think? Yeah. I mean, we, we like the whole sector. Um, so we own uh, Asbury Group One and Auto Nation. I, I kind of give you Auto Nation as sort of the, the, the biggest and the, and the most well-known. But this is also a sector that I think um, very misunderstood. Um, only 15 percent of the revenues come from service. But we think about 70 to 75 percent of the profits come from service. Uh, incredibly defensive business uh, in in that way, and one that's not being disrupted in in any way. Um, and and I think um, also profitable through through the pandemic. Um, but yet you're also exposed to uh, a U.S. consumer cyclical, um, a, a healthy U.S. consumer. Um, obviously tight uh, auto markets. Um, these companies trade at nine or ten times uh, earnings today. Um, we think they have very good growth. Uh, going forward, we think there's going to be consolidation in the space. Um, and, and you know, AutoNation probably in itself has been a bit of an underperformer relative to the rest of the sector. Um, we think there's some some catch up in in operations. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it is a sector, you know, you know, when you look at the 12 month performance of everything, you know, we're comparing to a year ago. Sure. When things were kind of, you know, people were assuming the world was ending. Um, these companies were, were were profitable and did great in the second quarter of a year ago. So people were just missing what was happening. So um, you're you're stepping in today at multiples of you know eight times forward after tax earnings. Again, if, you know our belief is this is a market that is rotating a bit more to to cyclical and value um, and away from growth and and U.S. consumer cyclical, given kind of the savings um, that we already have, given what the government is doing with stimulus. Um, and here you can buy high quality businesses um, with with protected markets at, at, at very low multiples, kind of exposed to to those uh, um, kind of cyclical wins. It's, it sounds like, you know, Expedia, Red Rock Resorts fit in very much into the category that you're talking about right now. I'm not sure how much you're thinking about the, you know, the prospect of even higher interest rates or inflation, making those kinds of stocks look even more attractive. And then some of the high multiple tech stocks not look um, as good as as they once did. How about that? Yeah. So so I think you know, Expedia and Red Rock are sort of classic um, reopen and and consumer leisure cyclical uh, kinds of businesses where um, you know we think they're great franchises. And in, in the case of Red Rock, um, you have the secular uh, story of people kind of um, moving to Las Vegas, moving to low cost states. Um, they are kind of the dominant locals uh, uh, provider of uh, of casino and, and leisure activity um, and, and 
you, you also have kind of the, the, the reopening. In, in Expedia, you have the, the return of travel. Um, we certainly think travel's coming back, but we want to be levered to um, sort of leisure travel, not necessarily corporate travel, which could have some permanent impairments. Expedia also was a company that um, had, had a new management change kind of coming into the crisis. One of the things we did in, in getting offensive at, at, the, at the bottom of, uh, of the market was focusing on companies that were improving themselves kind of going in and, and we're going to look a lot better on the other side. And so um, we think Expedia is one of those companies. Um, we see that as a company that, you know, on a normal cyclical upswing can earn uh, $13 a share, um, maybe uh, late 2022, 2023. Um, and, and, and that should trade, you know, I think 20 times earnings. Um, and, th and that's without um, major changes to um, some of the structural uh, position that that we think uh, new CEO Peter Kern has has been um, uh, implementing, and and so there could be significant upside beyond that, which um, I don't think you need to make that stock interesting from 165 today. Mm -hmm. um, you could, so so I think I think those are both on sort of the the, the more cyclical uh, reopen consumer leisure. You know, on, on your question on sort of tech and growth. Um, you know, we own some growth stocks, and 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 I think um, there's certainly a lot, a lot of secular growth in technology. Um, I do think in the period from 2010 to to 2019, we lived in a world of uncertainty, of rates coming down, and of low growth, and and that meant that defensive stocks and 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 stocks with good growth and kind of longer term opportunity just experienced multiple expansion after multiple expansion. And people's frameworks on those things might have to shift as we move into a world of faster economic growth, of maybe more inflation, of higher interest rates, and, and a world where the government is stimulating and, and, and trying to do different things. Um, so um, I, think, I think it could be a different world uh, in the next five years than it has looked, which doesn't mean that the tech stocks are, are, are shorts or, or bad companies. Um, it just means that the valuation paradigms might, might have to change a little bit. Let me ask you about, about another name, because I, I think it, it sort of fits into, you know, where, where things have gone and, and where they may go from here. A company called Will Scott Mobile, which, which frankly, I, I hadn't heard of either. We just hadn't talked about it on this show. They rent yeah. modular spaces and temp offices. How, how do you think about that stock in, in terms of the reopening and the recovery and and everything else moving forward. Yeah, so 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 Will Scott Mobile Mini is 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 one of the most sort of interesting um, niche businesses that that people have never really heard of. So um, uh, modular office space, you know, you can think about it as the 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 units that sit next to a construction site, maybe um, uh, extra um, selling space behind a, a retailer. Um, if you think about a, a a golf event and and the the sort of uh, selling space that they might have there, anything temporary, temporary space, um, they now have a 50% market share in that business. Um, there's sort of a loophole in, in um, any trust law that allows real estate companies to, to not be beholden to traditional antitrust law. And, and so this company on its surface looks like it rents a commodity, these kind of metal boxes that you put together in an outfit like, a, like an office. Um, but what it really is is a logistics business um, uh, and, and, and a business service provider. And this company has, has rolled up the industry. Now it's a 50% market share. And, and when you look at what they've been able to do um, uh, to this business um, and, and begin to provide their customers with better and better service, um, they, they developed um, a number of products that, that they call um, VAPs or value added products and services. Um, I would just say, um, we used to rent you an empty box. Now we outfit it with Wi-Fi, with desks, 
um, with shelving, with all the things that you need for an office. Um, and, and we start to charge you for that. But for you, all, all you want is, is easy to use and, and something um, on any sort of project. This is the first thing that goes on. And that's the last thing that comes off. Uh, average units on rent are three years. Um, when we look at the, at the leading edge of, of things that are being rented today, um, uh, they are being rented with, with rents that are 20% higher than the base and with VAPs or value-added products and services that are twice what the base has. And if you just roll that through over the next 18 to 24 months as um, the, the base rolls off, this is a company whose earnings and free cash flow will, will grow very significantly. We think um, uh, over the next 18 to 24 months, they'll, they'll do about $275 to $3 per share in free cash flow mm-hmm. um, and have growth beyond that. It's a, it's a $25, $26 stock. So, um, you know, we, we think you're paying you know nine times earnings and free cash flow for what is a dominant business services asset that maybe could trade for for 20 plus times as, as people begin to appreciate it. Let me, let me ask you uh, also sort of about the about the broader environment for for hedge funds in general, if I could. You you run a long short fund that was up nine point two percent net last year. Your long only fund was up nearly thirty two percent in in a recent letter that you wrote to investors, Ricky, you said, and I quote, we continue to adapt, refine and improve our short selling process and approach. And it seems as though that was in direct response to some of that meme stock mania that we witnessed starting at the beginning of, of this year. I'm wondering if you can speak about that just how you saw that whole thing transpire and how it appears to be changing the way that you're going to do part of your job when it comes to shorting stocks. Yeah, um, you know, and, and, and I think there are um, uh, a, a couple of related things in that. Um, you know, one of the things that's that's true about um, this market um, in, in, and, and markets in general is, is there are a lot of new players in the market, um, whether we're talking retail, whether we're talking um, ESG funds, whether we're talking um, uh, quant funds and, and passive. And, and so the, the, the landscape for fundamental investors has changed and people who are setting prices may have different, uh, at least in the short run, may have different um, considerations, which means that stocks are getting disconnected uh, from fundamental value for, for, for wider amounts and, and bigger amounts, which for, for fundamental investors is an exciting time because in the long run, we all believe that that, that value will, will matter a lot. Um, and, but but the, the fundamental truth is for an investor on the long side, um, th- that disconnect um, is, is a positive opportunity. Um, my long position goes down. Um, I have less capital invested. I can take advantage of that. I can add um, to that position, not take any more risk in my portfolio and probably add to my alpha. Um, on the short side, unfortunately, if, if that disconnect means it goes against me, um, I now have more risk on the table. I actually have to crystallize losses. And so this, this wider disconnect has, has meant that portfolio construction has to change. We probably have to take smaller position sizes on the short side um, and think more about um, these, these disconnects. And, and so um, it, it, it has continued to cause us to have to refine and change what we do. Um, a bigger opportunity on, on the long side and, and um, changing risk management uh, on the short side. Um, overall, um, I love a market where we're playing against kind of non-fundamental players um, where we believe in the, in the long run, um, ultimately, you know, cash flows and business value will win out. So, um, but, but it is a manifestation of what's happened to uh, the equity markets over the last 
you know, 20 years. And, and the most recent uh, with, with the meme stocks, as you talked about, is, is really retail coming back to the market. And, and I don't think they're going to practice um, short squeezes, um, you know, as a uh, as a strategy all the time. Um, I think they have done different things. They, they started buying COVID winners and then they bought, um, you know, reopened stocks and, and, they, and they got to, to some of the short squeezes and, and, and they'll do all sorts of different things, but, but they are a significant player and, and they're here to stay. Um, they have a, a fair amount more money. Um, technology has made it very easy for them to, to access trading where we've given them the, the ability to trade for free. Um, and if you think about even the, the, the gaming markets, the gambling markets, um, you know, trading is, is a positive expected outcome if you trade from the long side. Stocks go up over time, um, and, and we're trading with no commissions. You know, compare that to the gambling markets where you're trading with, a, um, a, you know, paying the house money, and, and people still do that, and that's a that's a zero sum game. So, so I don't think retail is going away, and, and we all have to adapt to a world where where they're going to disconnect and dislocate stock prices even more. Um, in the long run, we we like playing against people um, who don't do the kind of research that we do and don't take the long term fundamental views that. Let me, uh, if I may, and again, we continue to wait for that hearing to uh, officially get underway. In terms of the Q&A, the opening statements are ongoing as we speak. The Treasury Secretary, there she is, Janet Yellen, is speaking right now. The Fed Chair uh, is up as well. So we'll go to the Q&A portion once. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFS com to learn more. It begins. Let me welcome in our investment committee as well today. Stephanie Link's here along with Pete Najarian and Josh Brown. And Stephanie, I'll go to you um, as we still have Ricky Sandler with us because your new position seems to play right into the way that Ricky is viewing the, the market and how the you know recovery of the economy is going to manifest itself. New position in Vail Resorts. Can you tell us about it and, and a comment if you have one for Ricky? Sure, absolutely. Um, I actually agree a lot of what Ricky has said in terms of his philosophy, their strategy this year. The fact that it wasn't easy to buy last year, right, at this time, but it was the right thing to do. And so I know I was in the market, too. It was really very tough. I, I was focusing on companies, big blue chip companies, number one, number two in their industries, with good balance sheets and improving their liquidity position. And so that was, for me, if I felt good about the capital levels, the balance sheets, and where they where the companies were in in each industry that to me was what I was looking for and so I got a lot of things on sale I don't think it's as easy like Ricky says said earlier I don't think it's as easy to find great names at this point but there still are a handful and Vail Resorts is definitely one of them it is definitely a reopen stock and what caught my eyes the second quarter when they reported they actually had a very much better than expected number in terms of revenues but also in margins and visitation rates went from down in the mid 50s to in the single digit levels as they progress through the quarter. And the exit rate was actually also very encouraging. They're going to release their pricing for 2022, 2021 and 2022, probably today. So we'll get a little bit more visibility on the pricing front. They have a good balance sheet. Liquidity is fine. M&A is, is what they do. They're the, the, they're the industry leader, if you will. And it's a free cash flow yield of 5%. So for me, I think in the consumer world, you know I own Wynn. You know I own Marriott. I have for a while. This one is fairly new. And I did take profits in, in Viacom and in Target because I'm up triple digits in both of them. Them. But the question I have for Ricky actually is, is kind of bigger picture. Um, how worried should we be about this SPAC craze in your in your mind? 
Well, um, you know, I, th- I think look, the, the markets have a way of sort of uh, uh, ferreting out the, the winners uh, from the losers. And, and you know, the, the SPAC in and of itself is is a, a free option uh, to, to the investors because if they don't like the deal, they can sort of give their, their money back. And I think, you know, all, we've done a lot of work um, on, on the history of, of, of all this stuff. And, you know, about, you know, 80% of them turn out to, to not be great investments and 20% turn out to be good investments. And, and I suspect this this cycle will be similar, maybe a little bit better because you're getting some better quality SPAC sponsors. But um, the, the truth will be in the, in, in the pipes that, that come behind the SPACs. Um, and this is part of um, kind of low interest rates and M&A craze um, and and, a, and a maybe a more efficient way for, for companies to get public. Um, so um, I think it's one of those signs that says um, we're in a more speculative, aggressive market um, and, and that we, we, we take as a little bit of a warning sign. I don't think in and of itself um, uh, it's a negative. Um, I think it will kind of take care of itself in terms of uh, the companies that do bad deals will not necessarily get funded uh, in their pipe transactions. Um, and, and so... Um, we don't view it as a uh, as, as as just a negative, and and in, in some cases for us, um, you know, we've participated in in four pipe transactions uh, over the last year and change, and and there are some interesting companies that have been able to come public um, in in a more efficient way, where where they can um, uh, provide better information to investors um, and and have a, a more efficient process to an IPO. You know, there, there's there's so much talk these days, Ricky, about vaccine rollout and interest rate policy. And I'm just wondering how you feel about what might be another potential risk that people are just starting to talk about more. And that is a change in tax policy from the Biden administration. How, how do you assess that as that's going to become closer to the front burner, per- perhaps in the weeks, if not months ahead? So I think I think if we're talking about from markets, I think we have to separate whether it's individual tax policy or corporate tax policy, um, because if it's individual tax policy, it may be a little bit part of a broader um, income and wealth inequality um, distribution policy, which which I think they're they're going to pursue and 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 we're just going to have to live with. Um, and, and I think it's you know they're at, at a moderate level, it it, it makes some sense. Um, you know, give stimulus money to uh, infrastructure, get jobs, get get more uh, workers hired, um, and and maybe uh, in certain pockets tax uh, wealthy people uh, a little bit more. Um, on, on the corporate level, if we see you know tax rates go from twenty one percent to twenty five or twenty six percent, I think that would be modest enough. Um, if it went further than that and, and companies started to get less competitive globally, um, I'd start to get uh, more concerned. So um, there'll be some nuance in, 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 in what happens. And um, we have to see how the, the Democrats are going to use their sort of, uh, you know, equal, we'll call them equal majority in, in Congress and, and how much they can really push through. I mean, if, if, if he's talking about 28 percent, that that certainly sounds like it gets to a level that makes you a little bit more uh, uncomfortable. You talk, you know, 25, 26 percent, 28 percent is, you know, is a difference maker, perhaps on, on certainly the earnings picture and thus the stock it, picture. It's 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 certainly a, a meaningful hit to earnings. Um, and, and and I think to um, what you would see uh, in, in 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 the level of the market, I, I, you know, again, I think I think the government is stimulating and, and we can have um, healthy growth. 
um, you know, you might take a, a one-time step down uh, in those companies and, and continue to grow from there. But yeah, I think at that level, um, uh, there, there's probably, you know, 15% air in the market that, that could come out. Ricky, I'm going to, I'm going to, Thank you and say, and say goodbye to you. Try and get a couple minutes in with the, the committee before I have to go to this panel hearing. I really appreciate your time today. It's good to have you back on uh, after just an, an incredible year uh, that I can't believe it feels like a decade uh, has already passed since we it last has, spoke. It has been a long year, but um, everybody stay safe and thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Yep, you as well. That's Ricky Sandler of Eminence uh, with us there. Pete Najarian, you've got a number of moves I'd like to try and squeeze in before I have to go to D.C. You bought a lot of calls. Uh, can you sure. tell me about some of them? Fang, Starbucks, uh, Taiwan Semi, Uber, Facebook? Yeah, I, I, you know, Scott, it's just been a really interesting thing to see um, just where we're seeing papers start to move, the option paper. And it has sort of... Uh, pivoted a little bit from where we were to where we are now. And we are still seeing some energy. We're still still seeing materials. That's not uh, going away. But we're seeing other areas of the market as well. And so I think that there are some opportunities out there. And we've, we've seen that, Scott, in, in different types of financials, not just banks. I'm talking about financials. So whether or not you want to pivot towards the regionals or those that are more credit card based, and, and it's just a, a conglomeration of all of that, Scott, where I took off an enormous amount of positions from last Friday into today, and the reason for that was uh, partially because some of them were working, and the other side of it was I just felt like, you know, Ricky was talking about how he feels about the economy and very, very strong. He thinks this can extend a little bit farther. I don't disagree with him, but I do think that we are starting to see another rotation within the market, and he mentioned it. He talked about that rotation towards value, I'll call quality names, and we are seeing that. So I've, I've, I've definitely added some of those to my portfolio as well. But there's still room for some of those that, that I think can still work even post-pandemic uh, with vaccines and everything else that had great runs. And I think there are a number of different names out there that really do fit the mold for some of that, Scott. So it's interesting. that's kind of how I was pivoting around throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah the XLF, you, you bought calls in too. Um, you know, the, these yeah. are stocks that obviously the, the bank stocks and the financials that, that have had a, a big move because of interest rates. And I, and I remember, you know, a conversation we had yesterday with with Joe Terranova. And I think he had, you know, taken mm -hmm. profits in Wells Fargo. Uh, and I think it was maybe it was Bank of America. And I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but the idea of those stocks have mm -hmm. run a long way and maybe interest rates have to are topping out in the near term. Yeah, you know what? That, that certainly could be. Or are they just pausing for the moment? You know, none of us know the answer to that, but we'll we'll see how this plays out. But I still have an incredible amount of financial exposure because mm -hmm. of the fact that they had gotten so beaten up. And we look at these stocks the same way we look at the airline stocks and other stocks where they didn't really participate very well in previous years. So because of that, um, I still still do think there's still room for extension to the upside. Gotcha, Pete. Thank you. Josh, forgive me. I've got to go to yep. Janet Yellen, Thanks. who is now. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Participating in the Q&A portion of the hearing. Of the area median or below and that the assistance can be for up to 15 months. Um, we're trying to provide grantees with flexibility to operate, establish their programs and operate them within those parameters, but with a great deal of flexibility to um, address local needs as they see it. Um, the role of the Treasury here is to provide policy guidance so that grantees can establish and follow their own program policies to meet local needs. And we're developing outreach and technical assistance so that our grantees can understand best practice. Of course, we have um, a role in monitoring to make sure that the payments are reaching intended populations. Secretary Yellen, I hate to interrupt you. My time is going to be up shortly, but I am very concerned about the flexibility uh, that the states have. Uh, and I don't really know what all of that means, uh, but I do know that there's a lot of confusion because some states had moratorium programs, some cities had moratorium programs, the federal government has a moratorium program. And so I think that's confusing uh, to our renters. In addition to that, for the state of California to say that they're going to pay uh, 80% of uh, the rental uh, assistance rather than 100%, uh, bothers me somewhat, and I don't know what other states are doing. And I know uh, that the federal government uh, does guidance, so I'd like to know if you can think about any role that we can play to help straighten out confusion and to help stabilize this rental assistance. Congresswoman, we um, did distribute um, frequently asked questions revised from the previous administrations to try to provide additional guidance. But um, if you have concerns, my staff will be glad to work with you in your office to see if it's possible to address them. Thank you very much. I appreciate that because there is confusion out there and I'm worried uh, about um, you know what is happening with this confusion and whether or not our landlords are gonna abandon us uh, and not go for another moratorium. And so it's a lot of questions. I will be back for you and thank you so very much. Uh, with that, uh, I now recognize Mr. McHenry for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And uh, and look, uh, Chair, Chair Powell and uh, Chairman Powell and uh, Secretary Yellen, uh, you know, I have um, I previously asked about the, the question of the independence of the Fed and trying to get the Secretary of the Treasury uh, to opine about that. Uh, 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 Dr. Yellen, um, I would suggest that maybe I, I need to skip that question with you. I think you have very practical understanding 
and knowledge here at play. And um, you'll treat your successor as, as you wish to, to have been treated uh, when, when you're sitting in, uh, when he, since he is now sitting in your chair. Uh, so, uh, yes. Well, uh, look, um, it's, it's nice to have uh, uh, two folks that, that understand uh, this um, in these respective seats. But uh, Chair, Chairman Powell, I, I want to begin with you and talk about inflation. Um, there's uh, continues to be a great deal of speculation uh, that we should be worried about inflationary pressures, particularly after the passage of the most recent $1.9 trillion spending bill, the so-called stimulus or COVID stimulus bill. Um, and then uh, we see recent press reports of an additional $3 trillion of spending contemplated by this administration. Um, does does the, the Fed share that there are inflationary pressures and concerns with this rate of spending? Uh, what's the view now? Thanks. So let me start by saying that we're strongly committed to our, uh, our price stability mandate, which is, you know, along with our maximum employment uh, mandate, those are the two mandates that you've essentially given us. So, uh, and that we, we construe that as, as two, inflation that is uh, 2% over time, inflation that averages 2% over time. Um, in, we do expect that inflation will move up uh, over the course of this year, first because of um, what we call base effects, the, the very low readings of March and April of last year drop out of the 12 month calculation and mechanically it rises, but that goes away quite quickly. Uh, possibly after that, we'll see a situation in which uh, as the economy reopens and vaccine, vaccination continues, there could be a surge in spending and there could be some bottlenecks in the economy. We see, we see some of that now. We might see some upward pressure on prices. Our best view is that these, uh, the effect on inflation will be neither particularly large nor persistent. And part of that just is that we've been living in a world of strong disinflationary pressures around the world, really, for a quarter of a century. And we, we don't think that uh, a one-time uh, uh, surge in spending leading to temporary price increases would disrupt that. However, we have the tools to deal with that. We remain strongly committed to inflation expectations anchored at 2%. And we'll, we'll use our tools as appropriate to achieve that. As far as uh, further fiscal policy is concerned, it's not up to us to uh, come. Uh, as we've discussed on some occasions, uh, we don't comment on fiscal policy. We try not to, particularly on, on specific bills and things like that. So I'll leave that to, to others. Well, Secretary Yellen, uh, about fiscal policy. Uh, we have, uh, as Chairman uh, uh, Waters highlighted the rental assistance, the $25 billion of rental assistance to individuals and families uh, that were in arrears because of the lockdowns. Um, and, uh, and we've tried to support them with some rental assistance. What guardrails has the Department of Treasury put in place to ensure that the funds are actually prioritized for individuals and families who are in rental arrears? Well, it is, it is Treasury's job to establish uh, guardrails, and we've we've done that by um, issuing a set of frequently answered questions that um, are essentially guidance about how the money needs to be used. Um, it clarifies that grantees have flexibility, but um, also that there are uh, requirements of the statute and. Um, that we will 
you know, follow up to make sure that the uh, payments um, are going to eligible households and that the guidelines of the program are being followed. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Secretary Yellen. Final question I have is about oversight, uh, Secretary Yellen. Uh, your predecessor agreed to very onerous and, and rigid and strong oversight uh, for the CARES Act. And this current $1.9 trillion has rescinded all those things, sadly, uh, except this uh, quarterly hearing. Uh, and so what I'd like to hear is your voluntary uh, commitment to uh, work with Congress, the GAO, the Special Inspector Generals, and the Congressional Oversight Commission, as well as this committee. Well, you have it. I think oversight is very important, and I pledge to um, work with this committee and the oversight groups. Uh, thank, thank you, you Secretary much. Yellen, and congratulations on uh, your, your new chair. Thank you. Thank you. I now recognize Ms. Maloney for five minutes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Chair Waters, for having this, and welcome Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen. And as the first female secretary of the treasury in the history and the first to head the Fed, we are so proud of you and of your many accomplishments, uh, Secretary Yellen. And, and uh, this Women's History Month, you are certainly inspiring many young women with more confidence and aspirations with the, your leadership. So thank you. As you know, uh, at the end of last year, we were able to reach a bipartisan compromise on my Corporate Transparency Act which will track, crack down on anonymous shell companies, uh, the vehicle of choice for criminal activity, money laundering, and terrorism financing. And I, I wanna thank uh, Ranking Member McHenry for his willingness to compromise and Chairwoman Waters for your steadfast support of this bill over many, many years. The, the bill requires companies to disclose their true beneficial owners to FinCEN, which is an arm of Treasury, and FinCEN will collect this uh, information in a database which is intended to be the state of our art with privacy and security protections. Law enforcement calls it the most important tool that's been given to them to track uh, illegal activity, illegal money activity in 30 years. And this implement implementation of this is going to be a massive undertaking and will require an enormous amount of resources and manpower at Treasury. Uh, I worked on this bill uh, as a top priority for 12 years, and implementing it and getting it up and running is a top priority of mine. It's incredibly important, I believe, to our national security. We have to get it right. And so my question to you is, uh, will you commit to making beneficial ownership one of your top priorities as Treasury Secretary? Uh, uh, we have two years to implement it, and uh, so I, I think it will make all of us safer. I, I think it's extremely important. I completely agree with you. Um, it's a very important piece of legislation, and it is one of our highest priorities to um, implement this promptly and to get it right. Um, we have a hiring plan. Um, we recognize that significant resources um, will be required and we're uh, trying to obtain them. Um, we have plans for um, how to collect the, the required database and we're actively um, working to implement this very important uh, piece, of, piece of legislation. 
Uh, thank you. I want to build on uh, Chair Lady Waters' uh, question. I'm not going to repeat all the things that were in the Important Recovery Act, uh, but my question to you, Secretary Yellen and Chairman Powell, what steps can we take to ensure we don't lose a generation of workers which never return to the workforce or continue to face, uh, or that they face these depressed wages moving forward? We know that uh, over 11 million and a half women lost their jobs compared to 9 million men. Uh, Black and Latino women suffered the highest rate of all, and that the women's labor force participation is down 2%, and uh, the families are suffering. We have many uh, aspects of it. A lot of she mentioned from rent to food to uh, help in so many ways, but I'm concerned about this labor force that's been hurt. What can we do to help them get back into the labor force. And, and uh, my question is to you, Secretary Yellen first and Chairman Powell. Um, so first of all, in the short term, the um, American Rescue Plan contains substantial support for minorities and particularly for women um, who have been uh, forced to drop out of the labor, labor market. There's uh, an important increase in the child tax credit um, that's going to result in, along with other provisions, a 50% reduction in the child poverty rate. Uh, there's money to open and support school openings promptly. There's an enhanced child independent care credit um, with a successful vaccination program to get women back uh, into the labor force. And longer term, um, when we've gotten to the other side of this pandemic, we hope to address uh, in the jobs package um, over the longer term, some of the factors that have resulted in low wages and um, low labor force participation for women. Thank you, my time has expired. Mrs. Wagner, the dental lady from Missouri is recognized for five minutes. I uh, thank you, Madam Chairwoman, and thank you, Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen for joining us today. Secretary Yellen, and I'd ask you, please respectfully, if you could keep your answers brief. Um, as the country begins to safely reopen uh, and our economy recovers, is examining changes to tax policy the correct direction? Um, we, we expect to examine changes to tax policy along with programs that will address some of the longstanding problems that have held down uh, productivity and labor supply in the United States. Um, we'll address infrastructure, risks from climate change, education, uh -huh. training. Let me, let me ask you, ma'am, um, Secretary, what impact would this action have on jobs and workers' wages? Um, I think a package that consists of um, investments in people, investments in infrastructure, um, will help to create good jobs in the American economy and changes to this tax structure will help to pay for those programs. Well, Secretary Yellen, what tends to be the impact, I guess I'd ask, on the American consumer, the consumer, my constituents, uh, when corporate taxes are raised, 
and do the costs usually tend to be passed down to them? Um, the impact of changes in corporate taxes uh, have been studied by economists for a long time, and uh, the impact of them on prices um, are, and on consumers are very unclear from existing studies. Well, um, we I, do I, need I, to... Go ahead, please. We do need to raise revenues in a fair way to support the spending that this economy needs to be competitive and productive. And so let me just say this, Secretary Yellen, if I could. You know, I think we know. We know that raising the corporate tax rate results in higher costs for small businesses, schools, and American households. Then why is this country begins to reopen and recover economically with the Biden administration um, be proposing tax policy, which would in the end hurt the American family and millions of struggling small businesses? The Biden administration is not going to propose policies that hurt small businesses or Americans. The Biden administration is going to propose investments this economy has long needed to be competitive and productive and well, support with all, for... With all due respect, ma'am, I would say this. Um, certainly raising taxes on business and industry is going to affect consumers and households and American families in a very adverse way. Is this being proposed, these tax increases, to offset the costs of the recently enacted partisan stimulus package, ma'am? No, the, the stimulus package, the um, American Rescue Plan, was not funded with any increases in taxes, but um, a longer-term plan uh, that addresses uh, critical really needs of this economy probably would, would be accompanied by some re revenue raisers. Yes, I'd say so. And um, I'd say that the plan as it exists right now hasn't been paid for. For example, let me just say this. Last month, lumber prices hit an all-time high, doubling in price from just three months ago. Gasoline prices jumped 6.4% over the previous month, while electricity and natural gas prices rose 3.9%, not to mention housing prices and other manufacturing supply chain goods. Are, are these steady increases a sign that once the economy fully reopens, we're likely to see parts of the economy where demand is intense, at least for a period of time, leading to some additional, I think, price pressures. Let me ask you this, Chairman Powell, my limited time. You, you, could you describe in detail the wide range of, of policy tools the Fed has at its disposal to address what is obvious inflationary pressures that we're seeing already? Well, our, our most basic tools are here to try to achieve price stability, and those principally are our interest rates and moving interest rates up and down. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, though, our best expectation is that there'll be modest upward pressure on prices this year, but that they won't be particularly large or persistent into the future. But we do have those tools, uh, and we'll use them. Thank you. My time is expired. I shall yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from California, Mr. Sherman is recognized for five minutes. Thank you. And addressing the comments of uh, Ms. Wagner, uh, um, most of the studies I've seen, and obviously the Secretary of Treasury has seen far more, 
indicates that increases in corporate income taxes are not passed through to consumers, but that the incidence of that tax is borne uh, by uh, those who invest capital, um, and which is disproportionately the top 1%. In contrast, sales taxes are passed through to consumers. Um, I want to use most of my five minutes just to bring to the attention of our two august witnesses some matters that I hope uh, will merit their personal attention in the days to come. Um, Madam Secretary, your predecessor admitted to me uh, from a foreign policy standpoint that uh, the Treasury Department would put a reasonable amount of lawyer hours into doing a tax treaty with Armenia. And uh, I hope that uh, that policy will continue now that the Yerevan government is, uh, is ready to proceed, uh, having had some uh, discord in the past. Um, Madam Secretary, you have delayed till May 17th, the April 15th deadline for Form 1040. It's very important that you do the same for the first of the four Form 1040ES, the estimated tax payments uh, a voucher that is usually prepared at the same time and is so important to gig workers. Madam Secretary, two days ago, the IRS issued a report indicating that one-fifth of the earnings of the uh, top 1% are going untaxed. I hope very much that you'll work with Congress uh, to replace and restore the 15,000 enforcement officers that the IRS has lost in the past decade. Uh, I uh, used to head the uh, second largest tax agency in our country. And it's clear that uh, putting more uh, effort into tax collection, particularly to, from the top 1%, will collect many more times uh, the cost in additional revenue um, and will, I think, add to our social cohesion because wage earners are paying their taxes. Uh, Madam Secretary, I hope you'll focus on a letter from the state of California of May 19th, desperately needing guidance on the uh, Recovery Act, especially uh, showing that a decision by California to conform to federal law. So federal law recently is very generous to the PPP small businesses. If California conforms to that law, that that isn't regarded as a tax decrease uh, violative of the provisions of the Recovery Act uh, that say that states should not be using those funds uh, to, uh, to cut taxes. Uh, Chairman Powell, uh, you have, uh, we've talked a lot about wire fraud. Uh, your staff has told me they don't plan to solve the problem. I hope you get personally involved in making sure our new wire transfer system does solve the problem. And uh, Chairman Powell, I want to commend you for your statement yesterday that the Fed will not proceed with creating a new central bank digital currency without the support of Congress. And I don't think you'll have that support unless the know your customer provisions are applicable to this new system and it doesn't become useful uh, to uh, tax evaders, uh, terrorists, drug dealers, et cetera. Um, uh, Madam Secretary, believe it or not, I do have a question. Um, Chairman Powell, uh, when he was last before us last month, testified before this committee that federal legislation is necessary to fix the legacy LIBOR contracts so that they can continue to function after the LIBOR index is no longer published by our friends in London. Uh, Secretary Yellen, would you agree with Chairman Powell 
that Congress will need to act to provide for a smooth transition for these $2 trillion in contracts? Yes, I would agree. Um, there is certain legacy contracts where the transition could be difficult um, without legislation. Um, and so I, these are contracts that don't provide for a workable fallback rate. And so I think, I think Congress does need to um, provide legislation to, for the LIBOR transition. Thank you. And in my remaining time, uh, can you address the issue of states that are conforming their laws to uh, uh, their income tax laws to federal income tax law? Is that going to be regarded as a violation of the uh, re uh, of the Recovery Act? We're working to provide guidelines on what will and won't count, and it's premature for me until we have completed that to offer you an answer on the specifics. Please, it's we'll critical. do it quickly. Thank you very much. The gentleman's time has expired, uh, Mr. Lucas. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair, for holding this hearing, and thank you, Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen, for appearing before the committee. And of course, Secretary Yellen, uh, congratulations. I join my colleagues on your confirmation as the first woman to serve as Secretary of the Treasury. I look forward to the day, uh, hopefully not very far off, when all positions of responsibility, all opportunities in society will advance to the point where we can no longer use the phrase first woman again. That day will come, hopefully so. soon. This past Friday, the Fed announced the temporary exclusion of treasuries and reserves from the supplemental leverage ratio will expire at the end of the month. The announcement also stated that the Fed will seek public comment on potential SLR modifications. Chairman Yao, how could you comment if the exclusion of treasuries and reserves from the over the past year helped improve U.S. Treasury market conditions and banks' ability to provide credit? Punch your button, Mr. Chairman. All right, sorry, I clicked, I double clicked there, but just out of habit and remuted myself. Okay, so um, as you know, the, the Treasury market was in. Boulder, let's uh, go to the White House right now motivation of the killer in Boulder, Colorado, and other critical aspects of this mass shooting. I've been briefed this morning by the Attorney General of the United States, the Director of the FBI. I've spoken with the Governor, and uh, I'll be speaking with the Mayor on the, on the aircraft. We're working very closely with the state and local law enforcement officials, and they're going to keep me updated as they learn more. You're going to ask me to speculate, understandably, you'd ask me to speculate about what happened, why it happened, and I'm not going to do that now because we don't have all the information, not until I have all the facts. But I do know this, as President, I'm going to use all the resources at my disposal to keep the American people safe. As I said, at this moment, a great deal remains unknown, but three things are certain. First. Ten lives have been lost, and more families have been shattered by gun violence in the state of Colorado. And Jill and I are devastated. And uh, the feeling, I just can't imagine how the families are feeling, the victims 
whose futures were stolen from them, from their families, from their loved ones, who uh, now have to struggle to go on and try to make sense of what's happened. Less than a week after the horrific murders of eight people and the assault on the AAPI community in Georgia, while the flag was still flying half-staff for the tragedy, another American city has been scarred by gun violence and resulting trauma. And the state that I even hate to say it because we're saying it so often, my heart goes out. Our hearts go out for the survivors the, who had to, uh, had to flee for their lives and who hid, terrified, unsure if they would ever see their families again, their friends again. The consequences of all this are deeper than I suspect we know. By that, I mean the mental consequences, the feeling of, anyway, it just been through too many of these. The second point I want to make is my deepest thanks to the heroic police and other first responders who acted so quickly to address the situation and keep uh, the members of their community safe. And to state the obvious, the obvious, I commend the exceptional bravery of Officer Eric Talley. And I send my deepest condolences to his family, his close, close family and seven children. You know, when he pinned on that badge yesterday morning, he didn't know what the day would bring. I want everybody to think about this. Every time an officer walks out of his or her home and pins that badge on, the family member that they just said goodbye to wonders whether they'll subconsciously, will they get that call, the call that his wife got. He thought he'd be coming home to his family and his seven children. But when the moment the act came, Officer Tully did not hesitate in his duty, making the ultimate sacrifice in his effort to save lives. <clears throat> That's a definition of an American hero. And thirdly, I want to be very clear. This is the one thing I do know enough to say on in terms of what's happened there. While we're still waiting for more information regarding the shooter, his motive, the weapons he used, the guns, the magazines, the weapons, the modifications that apparently have taken place to those weapons that are involved here. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.